Hello, I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to this spring 2020 Ask a Neighbor edition of Ask a Leader. My guest today is Nick Gerda, who covers Orange County's county government on topics such as homelessness, public safety, mental health, and the role of money in politics. Since joining the Voice of OC in 2011, Nick's reported on systemic problems in the county's mental health system and led a reporting team that covered complex campaign money flows from the Walt Disney Corporation into local Anaheim elections. Nick's investigation into elected leaders using their official powers to pressure governmental contractors into donating to their re-election campaigns in an article that was awarded best news story of the year by the Orange County Press Club and was recognized in 2019 as Online Journalist of the Year by the Los Angeles Press Club. An Orange County native, Nick attended Santa Ana College, the American University in Cairo, and then completed his bachelor's degree in political science at UC Irvine. Welcome to Ask a Neighbor, Nick Gerda. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me. I, I appreciate it. Well, first, I have to ask you, Nick, how are you doing? Well, thank you for asking. It's been a, it's been quite a few weeks um, at Voice of OC, and and for for really everyone in the United States and around around the globe, kind of grappling with the new realities of coronavirus and and the flows of information that are flying around, and information and misinformation, and it's been honestly very very intense uh, trying to sort through uh, the raw in, in, intel streams that are coming out of government and the private sector and elsewhere. Um, it's been some long days working with my, my colleagues, um, but very grateful to be working with everyone and, and trying to get as much truthful information as we can out to the public at, at a time of a lot of kind of uncertainty and, and um, you know, stress for a lot of folks. Um, but it's, you know, it's, it's also been nice to see a lot of people come together and, and volunteer and, and try to support their neighbors um, in, through these, through these times. Well, raw, I think that that's a, like all encompassing. I think that captures so many different things in terms of learning as we're going, adjusting, realizing, and, and, I mean, everything. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to seize on that. Who knows? I bring that up again. Well, we'll talk plenty about the public institutions, but I want to give you a chance first to talk about the voice of OC, how it's, you've seized this moment in what we're amidst quite the media desert. We don't have the OC Weekly anymore. The Orange County Register is sort of uh, diminishing. We have the Los Angeles Times building hasn't been operating for many, many years. And, and there's less and less coverage. And it's, there's now so many ads that are being pulled in all kinds of media. So that's all dwindling down. So talk about how the voice of OC is moving into a very special role, especially right now in the, the age of COVID. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for the question. Um, I think there's a lot, kind of a lot to say here. I think for, for us at Voice, we're a very small nonprofit newsroom covering local politics and government in Orange County. Uh, we have two full-time reporters, um, and I, I'm one of them, and yes. my colleague Spencer Custodio is the other. Um, we have a reporting fellow who's a full-time student at uh, Cal State Fullerton, Brandon Foe, and two interns uh, as well, Hosam and Noah, a publisher, Noberto, um, and uh, other support support staff helping us out. But yeah, so we're a small newsroom trying to do the best we can. And in some ways, we're doing what we've been trained to do, what, what we've 
in a sense always been doing, which is try and cover kind of the biggest, most important civic stories facing Orange County um, amidst a media environment here in Orange County that was already um, less than other metropolitan areas of its size and, and has been um, declining even more in the last few years. And this is, you know, a nationwide trend of, of a decline in staffing at local newspapers and local local media that this decline really goes back to, I think, the 80s and 90s over time and has really accelerated in the last few years. And in particular with, with COVID, um, not so much, actually in, in Orange County as well, there, there's been reports of layoffs or buyouts happening at the Orange County Register, um, which already had a diminished staff from where it used to be uh, many years ago. And a lot of paper chains around the country have been either laying off staff or doing required pay cuts and furloughs um, in the midst of COVID because ultimately, fundamentally, what's, what the American media model was built on was an advertising-driven model. There was obviously subscriptions, but with um, ads being a key part of, of the revenue stream for papers, um, the rise of the internet and Craigslist and Facebook and Google really shifted a lot of those ad dollars to the web. And that led to a lot of cuts at, at local papers. And then now with, with COVID, um, a lot of local retail has you know, closed up shop, at least their brick and mortar storefronts. So we're seeing a big drop in advertising revenue at newspapers across the country. And then their, their owners are, are cutting jobs and cutting pay. So we're very fortunate at Voice to be a nonprofit. Um, we're supported by our readers, by grants from foundations and other organizations. So we've been stable and, and very grateful for all the support we've been getting out in the community. But in Orange County, I mean, we are the largest, Orange County's uh, about 3.2 million people, um, and it is the largest metropolitan uh, jurisdiction in the country without its own broadcast yes. news outlets. Um, so in, if Orange County was in, I mean, it, many areas smaller than Orange County by population in different parts of the country will have their own uh, radio stations, uh, you know, commercial radio with news and and television stations. Um, KUCI is a, a, one of the bright spots in Orange County of, of oh, one of the, the remaining radio stations. But um, you look at uh, you look at places that are much smaller than Orange County that have TV networks of their own and, and news broadcasts that kind of amplify a lot of the work that newspapers and, and kind of hard news reporters do at online and, and print publications. And so that really doesn't happen as much here in Orange County. There are LA stations that have Orange County reporters but it's not as much attention as if there were separate broadcasts here in Orange County. So, um, and then the papers, you know, uh, the LA Times used to have a much bigger presence in Orange County. Um, I think at one point it was a couple hundred reporters based in Orange County in the early 90s, and it's, it's much less today, um, again, amidst a broader um, kind of decline in staffing at, at newspapers but, across but the I want, And that's, I that's kind give, of where Voice of OC kind of fits in, yeah. I want to give you a chance, though, because this, there's something very nimble about Voice of OC, and you're talking about how many reporters were with the Los Angeles Times back up in the 90s, and they weren't so nimble. There were a lot of really interesting stories breaking right with the August body of the UCI you know, and the UC-wide system, and the Times Mirror didn't want to, you know, uh, they, they, I think, were a trustee on the UC Regents board, and so there, there mm. were some... That, that nimble quality of journalism wasn't wasn't always around. In fact, some people thought that the Orange County Register was showing up more than the, the Times. So it's sort of like, yeah, they were yeah, there. It's interesting but you, yeah, it's interesting you make that point. Um, I mean, a couple points on that back in the 90s, and this was before, kind of well, very much before my time 
in journalism. But uh, back in the 90s, it was the Register, um, rather than the Times, I believe, that broke the story of the UCI fertility doctor who was mixed up in a scandal involving fertility mm-hmm. at the clinic there. It was one of the big medical scandals of the 90s. But yeah, it was the Register that, that broke that. And then both the Register and the Times... Um, I, I heard one of the former editors for the Orange County edition of the LA Times, Marty Barron, um, who was portrayed in Spotlight as the editor in that in that film. Oh. He was the Orange County editor of the LA Times back in the '90s, and he had said that one of the I think one of the big regrets of of his time there was he felt that the Times had missed the ball in the run up to the the Orange County bankruptcy, which a was derivative the largest debacle. We call it. Yes, it, it was yeah. in some ways a, f- yep. a foreshadowing of the of the financial crisis in two thousand eight. Yep. In terms of um, these these, I think it was derivatives or. I forget the name of the, the the financial instrument, but Orange County was doing these very risky investments, and there had been some red flags, some warning signs. And I think John Morlock, who later became a supervisor, was raising some alarm bells at the time as well. But it kind of went overlooked in the run-up to the bankruptcy. And so there were things that later on some of the people at the times, um, uh, you know, looked back and, and said that, that they might have missed the ball on. But there were, you know, I, I remember when I first moved to Orange County in late 90s, early 2000s, you got this sense of more civic, there, there was a lot more civic coverage happening at city council meetings, kind of more regular coverage of the issues, whether it's development projects or pedestrian fatalities or things, things, things like that, that was in a lot more, getting a lot more attention at the time. Um, kind of the day-to-day stuff facing the community. And now obviously with the decline in, in advertising revenue and and people getting, I think, more used to free news through the internet, there's been you know decline in revenues at, at the major papers and less staff, you know, covering these these uh, these agencies. And I think I think last I heard the Orange County Register had about four reporters assigned to cover the 34 cities in Orange County. Oh um, wow across across i'm doing the math and there there may be yeah there may be an update on that but as of a few months ago that was the latest um latest i was hearing um so yeah so it's it's a it's a very um it's a tough environment as a journalist but there's a lot of stories out there and we're very fortunate and and grateful to be able to get out there and and cover them and then we're we're now in the midst of um one of the big societal shifts and and biggest events global events um of our lifetime if not if not the biggest um so we're trying to do our best to stay on top of it and get plugged into what's happening and bring information to the public. And just quickly insert that your development office, just before we went onto this podcast, has talked about the uptick of subscribers in March. So people are hearing Voice of OC. You're you're giving me information I'm not finding anywhere else. And the other readers, they're not just reading online, but they're, they're actually subscribing. So that, so, so let's go now onto this age of COVID. It's put Orange County's government under a pretty high powered microscope. Why don't we talk about, have you talk about the statecraft of Orange County amidst the COVID crisis compared to, you know, examples you're, I'm sure you're watching all the other adjacent counties, Sacramento, the governor's office, how they're all presenting their daily bulletins, Orange County's government's doing it. They're down to their regular meetings they're broadcasting at their dais there, as well as the twice a week press conferences. So talk about the statecraft in general, briefly. Yeah, so in in terms of kind of the big picture, 
when it comes to health and public health and, and emergencies that really falls locally to the county governments rather than cities. I mean, cities do have a role to play, but for the most part, it is, it is the counties that have the public health uh, agencies and offices um, and, and are kind of coordinating the response to uh, emergencies when they, when they pop up. And so we've seen um, you know, news conferences at the county and in surrounding jurisdictions um, like LA and, and elsewhere. And for the county of Orange, there were certainly some a learning curve for them in getting these these broadcasts up and running. For a while, they were not answering questions um, that the public had and that the press had about, for example, their initial health order that right. was causing widespread confusion. They later acknowledged that it had caused um, widespread confusion, and that that order kind of came out on a I think it was a Tuesday, and it right, seemed to say to a lot of people, to a lot of the public, were were seeing reading it, and it appeared to say that that all in person gathering at private businesses was now Ill- illegal in Orange County, um, except for these specific list of businesses, and people were reading the list and saying, "No, my, my business isn't in there." I must then my business is my business now illegal, and this is before all these more clarity came out later with the governor's order. And so there was a lot of confusion, and and we had been trying to get answers from the county just to clarify, you know, what is legal and what's not now under this order. We're not getting answers. Eventually, the county CEO um, gave me a call, and and we uh, got that cleared up later that night. Um, but at the time, Orange County was not holding um, press conferences to answer questions, and eventually, ultimately, they did end up starting these press conferences. It was in a part of their new building that has apparently very bad cell phone coverage. This is according to a lot of officials there. Okay. Um, and so the feed, the video feed on Facebook Live was cutting out at times. The audio was cutting out at times. Um, a lot of the comments on Facebook were talking about that as well. And you know, over time, they've started setting up more of a, a, a call-in line for media to ask questions. So it's gotten you know, easier to ask questions, but it took a bit of time for the county to, to get that up and running. Um, and today, I think they held another news conference. Um, it was difficult to hear, watching the, the Facebook live feed, what the reporter's questions were. At one point, the sign language interpreter you could, you could see kind of the strained look on her face as she was uh, trying to hear the reporter's questions. It was um, very so difficult to hear all your questions. It was super hard. And you could, so, hear, yeah, it's, it's, you could hear the district attorney shuffling his papers and clearing his throat. And then, you, then this shoo, down, to, down to this whisper from the, the reporter's questions. So, yeah, it's, it's... Yeah, that is one of the bits of feedback we've heard is that, um, you know, at times there's technical glitches and, and issues with hearing the, the, the county's uh, news conferences. But we're, we're trying the best we can. And, and uh, to the county's credit, they have been making certain officials available for interviews. Um, and that's always okay. been helpful to get things cleared up, uh, to just talk one-on-one with, with someone who's kind of, uh, you know, leading different responses at the county um, and to get kind of get their undivided attention to, to clear things up and have follow-up questions and things like that. So your questions, when you have the opportunity, as well as your colleague and the other reporters, are taking up this, how has the county been preparing? So talk about their preparation for the surge in the area hospitals, their preparation for COVID testing, their projection of need for supplies, for setting up the triage facilities. That's a great question. That's that's really one of the big focal points right now uh, amongst the medical field and, and at the county and, and really statewide. I mean, the governor has been um, doing near daily, if not near daily updates on this. Um, so essentially, they're all preparing for this anticipated potential surge in cases. Um, and, and statewide, 
the governor has said that there's an additional 50,000, five, five zero thousand hospital beds that are needed beyond the, the, the existing capacity. Proportionately, Orange County is about 8% of the statewide population. So you're looking at thousands of additional um, hospital beds in Orange County um, that, are, that are projected to be needed. And there's a couple ways they're doing that. One is that they're, the hospitals themselves, the existing hospitals, are putting up uh, tents outside. They call them surge tents. Um, and that's adding an additional 10 to 20% capacity at each, at each hospital. Um, and they're, they're also freeing up their operating rooms as um, additional yes. rooms for, for ICU and patients and, and people with COVID. Um, and part of what's happened, they've canceled um, non-essential non procedures, um, so elective surgeries, things of that nature, to clear up space. So, and, and another aspect to all this as well is that they're seeing a big drop in people coming to the hospital for non-COVID issues, which has actually drawn some concern. We're seeing this in other parts of the country as well, is that people who are having perhaps heart attacks or strokes are uh, worried about going to the hospital and, and they're not calling 911 as quickly or at all. Um, and, and the message from the hospitals has been that there's, they still are you know, ready and, and willing to, um, to treat people for all, for all, all um, emergency medical issues. Um, and they've got procedures in place with personal protective equipment and other things to protect patients from COVID. Um, so one of the flip sides of all this has been with the drop of 911 calls, the drop of people coming into the hospital for non-COVID issues. And that has also opened up some of the capacity as well. Um, the other way they're building capacity or looking to build capacity um, with hospitals is setting up essentially overflow hospitals at the Orange County Fairgrounds and right. at Fairview Developmental Center in Costa Mesa. Those have not been up and running yet um, as of uh, Thursday, April 9th, but they're, they're preparing to, um, so I think, start with Fairview, which because it already has medical beds and, and facilities pretty much in place. The state is taking the lead on that, and they're looking to have perhaps about 500 beds there. And the idea would be uh, that would be either for non-COVID patients or for COVID patients with very low, the medical terms, they call it acuity, but um, people mm -hmm. who don't need you know, intensive treatment and care, and that that's where they would they would get get uh, taken care of to free up capacity at the main hospitals for for COVID patients. And then there's also a, a third layer of this, which is the the Mercy Hospital ship, the Navy's hospital right. ship that's in LA. In in LA, um, and that's basically the it, it, those beds are available to Orange County as well if if the need arises, um, because Orange County is part of a, a region for emergency medical um, treatment. So that those beds could, could also become available. Um, in terms of where we're at, the latest data has been showing definitely a rise in COVID cases in the hospitals. They're currently about 50% um, at capacity at the hospitals in Orange County. So what we're hearing is that um, they're fine right now at the hospitals and they're keeping a close eye on whether these um, hospitalizations stay flat, stay level, or if they're going to go up, continue to go up. And that's, that's kind of the, all, all eyes essentially are on those, those hospitalization numbers to see uh, if it's going to start running into capacity and if they need to create more beds. Um, the last couple of days, it's been pretty, pretty flat in hospitalizations, but they, they don't really know if that's going to continue or go up or down. Um, and they're, they're keeping an eye on, on that as well. So, uh, and then again, the message over and over again from the health uh, experts and the health authorities has been, 
the public should continue to social distance, stay at home as much as possible, except for essential errands and essential work, and that that really uh, has a direct impact on whether hospitals will be overloaded or be able to weather this, and that the more people abide by that guidance and, and wear masks in public um, when interacting at grocery stores, and, and the more people honor social distancing, the better position the hospitals will be. Um, to handle the cases. In terms of supplies, the term PPE has been um, used a lot lately. It's personal, personal protective prote- equipment. Nick, I'm going to exactly. stop you right here for a second. I'm going to, yeah. I want to make the focus about your evaluating how the county government is operating as opposed to like okay. public service for uh, where we are. I mean, there, there's, uh, yeah, it's an institutional evaluation. So for those of you who've just joined us, my guest is Nick Gerda, reporter with The Voice of OC. It's a digital news agency based in Santa Ana. Nick's talking about how the government is performing, and I could say literally and figuratively performing. So we're talking about the preparation in terms of this surge coming. Uh, It's been acknowledged it's only 1% of Californians have been tested. So that's one of the many. Yeah, less, less than that, exactly. Less than a exactly. percent. So that's, yeah. I know they know what the kind of, how to work the projections, but let's talk about how the county, it how it's on their radar, how they're responding, the county government, to meeting the needs of these huge different groups, undocumented residents who aren't going to be, uh, who are who are vulnerable in terms of financial and uh, health service delivery, the homeless sector, as well as the incarcerated population. How is the county measuring up and uh, meeting those needs? Yeah, the one the one that I'm most familiar with is on the homeless front. Uh, that's one where the county itself and the state and the federal government have all um, acknowledged that there's a huge, a much greater risk of spread of infectious disease um, amongst um, homeless people are particularly vulnerable to that. And, and it can also impact hospitals potentially too, if there's an uncontrolled outbreak of COVID. And so there um, are questions and, about the timing now that, right. you know, the response time, uh, right. were they waiting right. for California first to set a directive up? And so you were saying to that point. Yeah, so it's been about three and a half weeks, four weeks since Governor Newsom has called on the counties across California to create thousands of additional uh, homeless shelter beds through motels and hotels. Back back three weeks ago, he had um, his office had asked for Orange County to create two thousand three hundred uh, motel beds or additional beds for the homeless to help provide social distancing and prevent further spread of COVID. Three weeks later, Orange County was netting about the same as where it was three weeks prior. So it was still about 2,300 beds away from reaching that goal. Um, part of it was the county had been using National Guard armories as their some of their main shelters for the homeless. That, that's every, every year they do that. And so when the National Guard got called up, those shelters were no longer available and the county had no backup plan. So that lay lost a uh, net of about 200 beds from the closure of the armories. And it's been um, a few weeks before the county has started to get some of the motel beds up and running. And based on the county's own projections, um, there'll be still be 1,000 to 1,500 beds short of the goal that the governor has set. So uh, it's, it's, uh, it's been a source of frustration for a lot of um, health advocates and, and homeless advocates, the, the, the pace of the county's compliance with, with the call for, for these beds to prevent the spread of, of uh, the disease. And as well, the county has acknowledged they're essentially running blind to how much 
COVID testing has been done and the positive tests within shelters um, two or three weeks into the COVID crisis, um, the county said they hadn't even asked shelters how many COVID tests have been done. Um, they're starting to get more of that data in, including positive test information about um, homeless people, but, but it took, it took uh, two or three weeks for them to, to ask for that data. So do you, do you get where, where the impetus comes in? The, the, the directives are pushing out that we're all consuming news, this is coming. So where, what is it that helps them focus on some, the urgency of solving it in any way they can? That's a good question. I think um, when they uh, do face questions from the public, from the yes. press, um, sometimes sometimes from supervisors as well at the Tuesday meetings, you see you see things move more quickly uh, in, in general. Um, and so I think that's that's something that's, that's a trend we've seen is is uh, kind of the feedback and the questions from the public and from the press. They're they're then in a position to to have to respond to that. So yeah. So. Let's talk then about the, the policy rollout. You, you mentioned a little bit about the, the fits and starts with the physical distancing, which I like the governor mentions it, or social distancing. We, physical distancing, I think, is helping sort of reinforce the ideas that it's physical part, that the social connection has to be something to make this a survivable kind of a, a, a health crisis. So I'm talking about the rolling out of watching the policy set for the face mask protection. And let's talk to that specifically first. Yeah, so it's kind of been a you know, series of steps that escalate the, um, the control of, over the virus. So initially it was an advisement that um, people 65 and older stay at home. Then it was a recommendation that people in general stay at home, then it became an order. And now uh, face masks or the, what they're calling facial coverings, because it can include cloth, is being recommended or ordered in some counties. So Riverside County has issued an order requiring members of the public to wear facial coverings. Of some kind, right. Of right. some kind, right. LA, I believe, also is requiring, starting Friday at midnight, the public to wear facial coverings when visiting essential businesses like grocery stores. Um, Orange County had been grappling with this this week of which way to go. At one point, a county supervisor, Andrew Doe, wanted to, to issue an order from the dais um, during a meeting and got shot down by the rest of his um, uh, fellow supervisors who said they're, they're not doctors and they're going to defer to the county's health officer on this. And that what, what Orange County ended up saying is a strong recommendation that essential workers wear face coverings. Um, so, and the idea is that um, it helps prevent um, someone with COVID from spreading it to others right. by, by wearing a mask. And, and it's really driven by newer information out of the Centers for Disease Control, the CDC, um, that uh, a significant portion of people who are contagious with COVID do not show any symptoms at all. Um, anywhere between 25% and 50% of people with COVID who are contagious are estimated to, to not show any symptoms. And that's according to um, Dr. Anthony Fauci, right. the nation's so, top infectious disease expert. Yeah. So the policy with respect to real property tax relief, uh, eviction um, protection, uh, mortgage relief. Where is how is the county government performing in setting up policies for its? Yeah. So the sheriff's department hasn't really advertised this. They're they're the ones that the county most directly touches on are definitely property tax collection because they're they're in charge of that. 
and um, evictions. Um, and right now it's being left, um, the way the governor has, has um, issued the orders, my understanding is it's left to each city, or maybe there is okay. actually a statewide eviction moratorium of some kind, but cities can go further right. in how they, um, you know, how, how, what kinds of protections they have for tenants and how they strike that balance. And apparently the Sheriff's Department in Orange County has um, stopped carrying out eviction enforcement. Um, it's not been something they've um, really been broadcasting out there, but I, there was an answer, um, I think earlier this week from Sheriff Barnes, where he did say that they've, they've been holding off on that. And that's, that's kind of where they're at. And the court proceedings themselves are to a large extent halted because the courts are mostly shut down right now. But um, the sheriff did note that uh, those cases can be filed up to, there's like a six month deadline to file the cases. So there could still be evictions down the line, but for now it's all, it's all on pause. Property taxes, yeah. Orange County has been going back and forth on that and, and have been, um, the feedback we've been hearing in the public is a lot of frustration at a lack of clarity about where the county is at. So the property taxes typically are due twice a year, once in, I think, December, um, and then once on April 10th. Um, well, that's that deadline's right around the corner. Yep. And um, a lot of counties have been um, delaying that deadline to May, or San Bernardino County, for example, has been clear that um, every home that's occupied by its owner automatically qualifies for an, for an extension on filing those, those taxes, um, paying those taxes until the end of June. Orange County uh, has taken a very different approach. And, uh, last week when I was asking the county what mm -hmm. their policy, policy is, they said there would be no extensions whatsoever um, for people who are struggling economically due to the COVID pandemic, such as their business being closed or they're losing their jobs. Um, so it was definitely a harder line approach compared to other counties. And then um, after we ran that story, they kind of backtracked and are saying they will offer relief um, and, and provide extensions or at least a waiver of late fees um, for property taxpayers who have a significant demonstrated economic hardship. That's the term they're using, uh, very subject to interpretation. So then the question was for people deciding between paying their employees or paying their taxes um, and, and wanting to understand what the late fees, whether they qualify for the waiver of the late fees, like how is the county interpreting that? And so far the county and the treasurer tax collector, Sherry Friedenrich, have refused to say who will qualify for that and who won't. Um, so it's very up to their interpretation. And they're saying that people won't find out until after the deadline. So you can't find out ahead of time. Um, they're saying that property taxpayers will just have to kind of wait and roll the dice on whether they will get relief. Um, and so it's a very different position from other, other counties. Um, again, San Francisco and San Mateo County have extended their deadlines to May. And there's pressure now coming on the county, on Orange County from state legislators who wrote a letter asking for, for Sherry Friedenrich, the treasurer tax collector, to provide guidance and clarity for the public on um, who, who will qualify and who won't for these, these waivers. Because that does put residents in a really huge bind, not knowing what's going to happen. It's like, it's, it's like a double balloon payment, maybe, <laughs> in the, in later. Yeah, there's a lot of concern. And cascading effects. No. Yeah, we've heard a lot of concern. Now, you know, I, uh, on the other side of this, the county is worried about um, being able to pay for essential services like um, public health response right. and law enforcement, things like that. So they're they're trying to protect their bottom line, and uh, so it's, you know, it's kind of, they're trying to strike that balance. I think the, there's an even bigger question here, which is um, what happens to revenues for local government 
longer term, uh, if there's a longer term economic recession from this, um, the business shutdowns and, and the virus. Um, and that's something that's still an open question. Right. Um, and we'll are know they from, gonna see a big drop? Right? The governor said he's going to have the budget revised and pushed out in June. And he's telegraphing in various ways because he was all over the, the platforms, media platforms yesterday that the, the rainy day fund is just going to it's just going to be blasted through. So it's um, that that's probably where it's this local government offset is going to be where that's surely heading. So exactly a lot of, a lot of questions about that and, and uh, we'll try to keep, keep an eye on it. And so you know, yeah. let's, let's talk about today's press conference. I don't has Todd Spritzer, the, the, the district attorney been at other of the press conferences. I haven't seen all of them, but I, I he was there for today's. He was. I think he was at um, one or two of them earlier on. It's it's uh, hard to keep track of time these days. But uh, a few weeks ago, he was in some of the earlier ones. Okay, so he's back on. To or talk. you know, that okay. might have been that might have been the sheriff Don Barnes. So I, I he's been I on pretty remember. regularly. Yeah. So right, right. Todd Spitzer, along with Tom Umberg, state senator, is working on some price gouging and I guess fraud might be a separate part of what Spitzer's involved with. And that was his point at the press conference today. I don't know if there's a point you want to bring about that. Uh, when sure, I want to sure. Ask. Yes. Yeah. So um, essentially what, what Spitzer's, the DA is saying is that there's a loophole in the price gouging law during emergencies where um, it only applies to people who were previously selling that product. So like a retail store. Um, but it does, there's a loophole for people who are new to the market. So someone's selling toilet paper or masks for an exorbitant price, um, but they weren't previously selling it before, then, then the law doesn't, doesn't apply to them. Now, what's interesting is that he and, and Senator Tom Umberg have introduced, um, worked to introduce a bill that would expand the price gouging law to people who are new, new to the market. What's interesting is that the governor has actually now issued, as of about a week ago, an executive order that actually does essentially just that, and it okay. it, um, it, it already expands the price gouging law to new players in the market. Basically, if they're selling something for more than fifty percent above what the market rate for it was before the crisis, but uh, the, there's so. nothing that can be done with the convenience store, though being at like super expensive per unit price. It's just we have to live with that. That's not a new a new participant in this marketplace. It's that there's always, it's always been a very expensive roll of toilet paper was his point. And so not for people not to jump on them, not to get sort of punitive happy about going after bad uh, suspect actors when we've got so many things on our plate here to master in this COVID crisis. Right. I think he's trying to speak to, there's, there's, there's a scale of, of, um, gouging and i think the idea is that law enforcement wants to be more focused on the yeah. bigger cases um rather than the smaller things but but it's interesting because he, he was also saying that they've received over 130 complaints of price gouging in orange county but i, do, I last i heard they haven't actually filed um, criminal cases in any of them at this point so i don't know exactly how much they're enforcing it um there was a case in la county that led to an arrest uh, of someone for price gouging but at this point, uh, doesn't seem to be that much enforcement in Orange County. Yeah. So another point he was talking about was taking up child and elder abuse cases. What? Why was domestic abuse in terms of partners? Why was that not included? Do you know? 
the, the score of that? You know, I don't, I don't know. I know that um, this, what it might've been is what, what came up earlier this week is that the county is uh, in charge of uh, social services investigations for child abuse and elder abuse. Um, and so that was highlighted on Tuesday by the social services director that, that the social services staff are very troubled is the word she used and concerned about major, major drops in calls into the child abuse hotline reports and, and um, elder abuse hotlines. And they attribute that uh, particularly on the child abuse to the closure of schools. Um, they say that teachers are the main reporting parties that, that report child uh, abuse. Yeah. Um, so that's what's concerning them. And so I think uh, what, what the DA was kind of, because that got highlighted earlier in the week, I think that's, that's why he was focusing on it. Um, and his message was they continue to do investigations. Uh, they're ready to arrest people if there is probable cause um, for, for abuse. But one of the challenges continues to be how people can report abuse when they're now essentially ordered to stay home with, with potential, uh, with, with abusers. And I know in other counties, um, parts of LA, I think uh, people can text 911. I have not heard of that in Orange County at this point. I'm not, not 100% sure on that. Um, so that's something we're, we're looking into of what are the ways available for victims to report abuse um, if they're not able to make a phone call or they're afraid to make a phone call. So in a way, he's kind of deputizing all the constituents that are, if anybody sees something, say something. So if there aren't educators in the classroom as mandatory reporters, it's sort of now we're fanning out into a much more informal kind of oversight of the, these vulnerable people's protection. Yeah, that's that was that was his message, um, and and I think it's it's gonna it's likely will be a challenge because you're having mm. less there's less contact in general out in the community of, yeah. of people, um, but perhaps there are other ways that people can report report um, within their home. Yeah. Now this is where the UC Irvine Law School that they're on it with the the Center for Domestic Violence. They've had amazing, enormously interesting panels. For, for years now, and that this is going to be, they're going to spend a series on this one coming up. Well, let's, as we're drawing down in our time, let's return to the statecraft topic. And Nick, I'd like you to speak to how electoral politics could be shaping some of these performances, I'm putting air quotes here, and how maybe the performances might affect outcomes in the electoral process. Both ways. That's a very interesting question. I, you know, I, I am not inside anyone's head, uh, and and I don't oh, know. Oh, let's jump around. You know, <laughs> I don't know what's motivating what um, necessarily, but um, what we do know is is Orange County overall has become an increasingly competitive place with elections. A lot of these safer seats um, in the past for incumbent supervisors have become, and, and other officials and state assembly members have become much more competitive, and so there's a lot more. I know there's a lot more anxiety and nervousness on the part of the incumbent elected officials about their reelections. And, and this, this whole pandemic has really cast a lot of uncertainty about the typical election playbooks and, you know, like door to door campaigning is now off the table, um, at least for the foreseeable future in person voting. There's big questions about that. Will we, will we have in person voting in November? The, the public health data is showing that if we keep social distancing in place for long enough, there may be these periods of lifting social distancing for you know a few weeks at a time before snapping it back on 
that can allow for some in-person um, engagement without risking another outbreak. So there could be things that are done to, to allow that. So it's, it's a very, it's a, we're in very uncertain times and, and we know that there are some very competitive re-elections going on. Um, in particular, Andrew Doe, in the first district supervisor, is he's in a, a district that he's a Republican running in a district that has a 19 or 20 percentage point Democratic advantage. And Michelle uh, Steele is Michelle Steele's is, district uh, number two. Yeah, she, she's she's currently a, the second district county second supervisor, district. and, and she's, she's challenging Harley Ruda. Uh, yeah, in right. the 48th congressional right. district. But so that's. That's what I want to get to the point that you, uh, in your journalistic capacity, could sort of evaluate, you know, this COVID crisis is giving everybody a chance to measure what governing looks like, what it could look like and what it is looking like. And, you know, give the, we all now are getting very sharp relief of how people are performing in governing roles. That's what I want to That's a very at. interesting point. Yeah, I mean, it, w there's a lot more visibility, right, of, of our elections. We've never had this much. And, and juxtapositions of different governing styles and and the the content of exactly. what the governing exactly. is carrying and, and the County of Orange pretty much almost never held news conferences until COVID. So this is the first, really the first time we've seen kind of regular opportunities to to see elected officials in action and, and ask questions of them in a press conference setting. So it's, it's really, um, it, it's, it's, it is providing the public, I think, an opportunity to see for their, with, with, with our own eyes how, you know, how our elected officials are answering questions and, and how they're not answering questions or, or just in general how they're handling the situation. Um, and we're in very uncharted, uncharted territory. Um, uh, but but overall, we are seeing a lot more engagement amongst the public, a lot more yes. people tuning in to the press conferences and reading the the, the coverage. Um, our you know hits on our website, our views have been through the roof. I think at one point it was over a million um, views of our articles within a two week span. So there's a lot of interest in what's happening, and 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 people understanding I think as well more and more the direct connection between government and and our lives um, and that the decisions made at the, the city level the county level state level national level can really have an impact on our own health our family's health etc well nick i want to thank you can we do this again i know I, I, that would be great you've Happy had to. you've made time for this because i know there's so much you're putting together now and i appreciate your taking the time thanks it's been really good to get a look behind the scenes with your expertise well, thank you so much for, for having me. I've, I've enjoyed the discussion and uh, I wish you, wish you well and, and health and safety to you and your family. Thank you. My guest was Nick Gerda, reporter with the Voice of OC, a digital news agency based in Santa Ana. And I'm wishing him well and all of you that your spring holiday traditions are meaningful and sociable enough. Thanks everyone for listening. Stay safe, well, and healthy.